Hello and welcome to Switch It, the podcast that always waits for the umpire to call over. Never mind the baseball ashes after the events at Lords this weekend, I think we're going to have to start calling them the Binfire Ashes. Ben Stokes brought the lighter fluid and threatened a Headingley reprise, but this time Australia didn't drop their bundle and now sit 2-0 up in the series with three tests to come. From Johnny Bairstow's stumping to Mitchell Stark's non-catch to Nathan Lyon hopping out to bat on one leg to endless hours of bouncers to the Just Stop Oil protest, it was the messiest week at the home of cricket since someone last suggested they abolish the Eaton Harrow match. And that's before we get to the ICEC report and MCC members deciding the way to level the playing field is by behaving like football hooligans themselves. To bring all this hyperventilating drama back down to the level of civilised discourse, I'm joined by two of our team on the ground, a couple of polite inquirers in every sense, Vitushan Hantaraja and Matt Roller. Uh, good to see you both. Um, Vish, the Edgebaston test had its moments, but Lords suggests this Ashes is going to be off the scale. Yeah, Edgebaston collectively had much better cricket and that's fair to say. Like, it was much more entertaining. Every day felt like its own event. And Lords, there was a lot of head scratching until the final, not even the final day, really. Just those 20, 21 overs when Johnny Besser got run out and Ben Stokes decided to do another mad one. But um, yeah, they felt like two very different things. And Lords will now be judged on what happened in that last passage of play. Whereas I think if we look back to Edgbaston, that was the cricket we'd actually want to see throughout the series. It's only the cricket that we promised we would see throughout the series. You, you say but what we want to see. I mean, uh, an entire series of uh, uh, messy off-field drama about uh, the laws of the game and uh, who's playing it in the right spirit. I mean, surely that's what we're in for for the next uh, three weeks now. Yeah, well, it, well, it is now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I want to go back to that. And those. we're all in for it as well. Yeah, I think we are. Yeah, we'll, we'll finally trip up Usman Kawaja, whoever that brave soldier was in the, in the MCC. Uh, well, in the long room, rather. Um, yeah, no, it's... I think we always... This actually, is the no, sorry, Ashes. Yeah, I, I was going to say, we always thought it was going to be the, this way. Actually, that's completely a lie, because no one thought it was going to be this way. We thought the... Um, it's going to break into friends there. We thought this was going to be the series where where we talk about, like, oh, you know, but they're playing the same IPL franchise, and some of them are really calm because they've met Dhoni once. And, like, <laughs> this was going to be, you know, the, I suppose the chatty Ashes, but them chatting amongst themselves patting each other on the back, well bowled, well batted, this, that and the other, and now it just won't be that. And um, th- and that's what Kevin Peterson was complaining about on the first day at Lords. Yeah, he did. He brought this upon himself <laughs> <laughs> and us. Uh, Matt, only one team has ever come back from 2-0 down to win the Ashes. Um, I think it was before your time, before all our times, to be fair. But England, uh, under McCullum and Stokes, have been very big on breaking records, so... Yeah, it, it sounds ridiculous, isn't it, to suggest that they even have half a chance. They've been probably, particularly at Lords, outplayed by a better team, it felt. Um, a team who are a man down as well. And yet there's still quite a big part of me that thinks England could actually do it, despite everything that we've seen over the last 10 days of cricket. Um, which I suppose, to some extent, is to their credit um, and to the fact that they've uh, made Test cricket feel quite unpredictable even if uh, even if this series has basically gone with uh, the better team in both tests I would say um, but yeah it's been a it's a slightly strange situation where it feels like we've had a day where the series really came alive and yet you've also now got a score line where it feels like it should be pretty uh, decisive from this point in Yes, so uh, Ben Stokes was obviously talking um, confidently about those chances having um, I think 3-0 last summer against New Zealand, as he put it, 3-0 in Pakistan. Um, they know what to do. Um, that's all to come. We will uh, we'll have to get into all the messy stuff, though, I think, uh, and start... <laughs> here we go. Come on, this is what we're here for. Um, start with the moment that turned a normally genteel uh, members club into something resembling a Roman Colosseum slash provincial pub on a Friday night, depending on how you like your analogies. Uh, Vish... The Bairstow dismissal, it's in the laws. Should we move on? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think it's out. I mean, a lot of people agree that it's out. Uh, I don't see the big hassle. I think there is the the fact that it is the end of the over that twists it slightly, especially given the fact that 
from one of the replays behind behind Johnny Bairstow and Alex Carey, there's a wide shot from Sky when they show a replay. And if you look at it, you, you're able to see um, Ashan Raza at the standing end. And then when you see the square leg um, camera, you see Gaffney at square leg. And you see that when the, when the ball hits the stumps, Gaffney is walking in from square leg to be the standing umpire for the next over. Certainly he started that movement. It feels ridiculous to call it a movement because it's like we're, we're judging on um, you know twitches here and there. Uh, and and Raza Bruder film we're gonna yeah, know, yeah smoke yeah. on a grassy knoll here. I mean this is the thing it is. Sorry, I'll get to this point afterwards. But um, <laughs> but then you you see Raza like reach for his uh, clip where he reach for Hazelwood's cap which is clipped onto his belt to give back to the bowler. So neither of them actually see the incident, and I think they know that you know Gaffney puts his hands on. It's like right, everyone everyone just calm down a little bit and. Send it upstairs, and so by the letter of the law, it is out. Um, Besta just needs to look back. But then, you know, we're talking about this like we're talking about VAR, aren't we? And we're <laughs> talk- we're going to be slowing down footage of who's moving what. And, you know, there are people writing yesterday that Besto, people who were there writing yesterday that Besto tapped his bat, and he didn't tap his bat, and he just scratched his foot behind the crease, which he'd done previously before he'd gone for a, a little walk. And, yeah, I mean, that's that's basically where we're at we're kind of everyone's shouting quite wild things or going really granular and like you know scrolling to see the exact point that people move out of their respective positions and i don't want any part of it (laughs) (laughs) well we'll try not to dwell on this uh too much longer for your sake um vish uh someone sadly though matt did invoke the spirit of cricket it might even have been the England captain. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, uh, the sort of there's a, a, a preachy element, let's say, about the way England have played the game um, under uh, Brendan McCullum and Ben Stokes. We've, I think, we've observed it on this pod before. That's tended to be about uh, entertainment and, and kind of the right way to uh, play Test cricket. Um, but talking about uh, the spirit of the game and what's right and wrong outside of what the laws say i mean is that doing more damage to the basketball brand than any collapse against the short ball could yeah i I suppose i i do think that that did come into it um in this particular dismissal i do think that the fact that england have taken this slight sort of moral high ground and holier than thou attitude um throughout the last 12 months i wouldn't be surprised if um you know we've we've obviously seen it play out in the media as well as um on the pitch yeah but i wouldn't be at all surprised if a few australians were a bit put out of line about the fact that um you know england have taken ownership of the right way to do things and the right way to play and all, all these things and um i think definitely sort of listening to a couple of players speaking post match it felt as though um, as soon as Bairstow tried that on Labuschagne in the second innings, and I think he might have also tried it on Warner in the first innings, a sort of similar thing, albeit not at the end of the over, but um, still sort of similar, I suppose, slightly underhand runouts. Um, I, I think they felt it was fair game. The, the one thing I was slightly surprised by, though, I will, will say this, was that as much as anything, that Bairstow and Stokes didn't sort of, Bairstow particularly didn't just hang around a bit longer. I think quite often we see that in these sort of controversial decisions where the longer the batter sort of hangs around before dragging himself off, I think you can almost create create that seed of doubt in the opposition team mind about whether or not it's the right thing to do. Um, and I'm sort of thinking back to 2011 and Ian Bell here, mm. where I think he sort of, you know, obviously I think there was a T-end of all straight after that, mm. which maybe changed things. But I, I, I genuinely think there's a, there's a world in which if Best had stood there and just spoken to the umpires and comments for a while, started querying all this, all these details that are sort of emerging, however long on about who was grabbing which cap at what time and whether mm. over had been called. I wouldn't be too surprised if there'd been a slightly different outcome and the appeal had been retracted. But obviously the, the long and short of it, as Stokes himself has admitted, is it was out and Australia perfectly entitled to appeal. And um, for all the sort of chat about the right way to win or whatever, they're two 0 up, and I doubt they care too much. There's also the element there of um, just when Matt was talking about hanging around. Um, it's only when I, when you watch it back, um, and because Stokes mentioned it in his press conference about you know it seemed to because of what happened after that point, it, you know he was asked if he was I suppose fueled by anger, and he was like, well I couldn't be really because there was still so much to do, and it's why actually he didn't. You know, he wasn't particularly animated. He was obviously asking questions. He was 
there within the huddle. He was talking to the umpires and you know, it's, it's peculiar when you watch it back and you see the reaction now, and even I suppose the reaction to Stuart Broad immediately afterwards. It was all quite amicable there, and there was almost a kind of like professional to professional understanding of, mate. I know it sucks, but like it's kind of what happened. If you look at Travis Head and Johnny Besto, like they're you could cut together like you know, a, you know, two people like having a decent chat over that, and it'd be quite convincing, um, but not that um, forthright about it after the event but in that moment I did find it really surprising and almost actually didn't see the you know 24 hours probably a week long dialogue we're about to go into um, coming because it seemed like they took it on the chin you know in the moment and we haven't heard from Bairstow yet uh, and and he's and I cannot wait for that (laughs) I mean Matt's point there that he he kind of didn't hang around I mean he knows the rules he's tried to run uh, batters out uh, from that sort of position. Well, even if he, he, them. yeah, well, um, that's the, he's a wicketkeeper, isn't yeah, he? Like he, he, he exactly. knows, to, he knows to look for that. And I suppose that I don't want to get into it because there are so many different things that are thrown up as like an example of of something like this. And they're all, you know, none of them are really the same. Even the Labashain one mm. is not quite the same because he made a move. He took his guard outside mm. the crease because that's what people do. And mm. when you do that, and the keeper's standing back, they either try that underhand thing or they just come up to the stumps, don't they? Um, so you know there, there's so many little things under hand or underarm. Yeah, good, well, good point. Yeah, <laughs> well, you know, if the wickets are flat enough, they might. Do that. <laughs> yeah, that's what Pat Cummins said. Um, yeah, so it was the the thing I find really interesting about Bears though, and I would not be surprised in typical Johnny fashion if he smashes a runnable three hundred. <laughs> Sorry, not runnable one fifty ball three hundred, <laughs> because he's had quite a peculiar series. He had a brilliant first knock. Um, that seventy odd, and he looked. You know, he he justified his selection in that knock. Mm. Really, then he goes and puts down a few catches, misses a stumping, and everyone's thinking after that because we've had a week. We had a week after that first effort. Everyone was like, "God, you take one of those, and like, and England, England win." I mean, that's not a ridiculous thing to say. You take mm. one of the chances, England win. Um, and then he comes in here. He lifts a protester off second <laughs> over the the match. That happened in this game as well, by the way, yeah. Um, and then ends up in that situation where actually for the 10 runs he got, he looked pretty good. Like, I was a bit like, right, he looks properly on it. Um, I also think that's why he ends up walking out of his crease, actually, because he, he was clearly pumped and ticking. Mm. And he goes, he ducks a bouncer and so has to, you know, it's, it's not, obviously it's not a cowardly thing to do, but it's like, okay, you've got one on me, so I've gone back and I'll quite literally move forward now to show you that, um, you know, I'm not intimidated by this whatsoever. Um, but yeah, I'd be fascinated to know what's going on. Well, you know, what he's thinking of this all right now, because he's unwittingly become the centre of attention, having already been part of the attention with the dialogue around folks coming into this series after that first test. Um, and I, th- I think it was uh, quite interesting that um, Ben Stokes yesterday was asked specifically about Bearstow and getting around him and things like that. And the one thing we know about this England team is they know how to push Johnny's buttons in the right way and I wouldn't be surprised if they're you know calming him down and also like getting him almost to that level of like right we need this Johnny now you know <laughs> don't take it too seriously but stay about yeah stay, stay about maybe don't dial it up to 11 but definitely be a 9 or 10 and it, it was a weird test for him generally as well I mean England conceded I think 74 extras and mm. he didn't I don't I can't remember him putting down a chance correct me if I'm wrong but he, he definitely did have a pretty untidy Test with the gloves, quite a few buys went through, quite a few just sort of random drops of dot balls um, that came through to him. And then also I thought it was quite strange, actually. I thought his first innings dismissal was quite uncharacteristic, where, Mm. you know, obviously all the focus that morning when England lost six for 47, I think, in that session was on um, the sort of happy hookers and and Brooke in particular, I think, summed that up. I thought it was a really strange dismissal from Bairstow, a sort of very tame sort of check push to mid on, Mm. which obviously didn't get much scrutiny because that's, you know, the fact he had a high front elbow somehow means it's a more correct way to get out or something like that. But um, I also, I, 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 I felt as though it was a test where best though could so easily have hit one of the hundreds that we've seen at some point in that game in one of the two innings that would have completely changed the game. But as it happened for various circumstantial reasons, um, you know, it ended up being probably one of his worst tests in, in the basketball era. So the hope 
um, especially going back to his home ground, Headingley, where he, he did pretty well last year against New Zealand. Um, I, I, the hope from the English perspective is that he's going to um, be uh, fired up just to the right level um, and, and go and do what we all know he can. <laughs> yes, well, I'm, I imagine he'll be focused on um, checking whether the ball is dead um, uh, between deliveries this week. Maybe not quite like Stuart Broad did, but yeah. <laughs> Maybe not to that level, although, I mean, uh, that was... Entertaining, at least for a while. Yeah, are you joking? That was, that's better than what Stokes did. That was the, the, the crazy. Honestly, the craziest thing about that is when he walked, when Stuart Broad walked out. I thought this is either the best or the worst person for this situation because he clearly, you know, he had he had all his all his pads on. He had his you know his guards. He had his arm guard, helmet secured on, but he'd left his head in the in the dressing room and I thought this guy is just gonna I don't know what he's gonna do he might pour yellow paint on the pitch <laughs> and so much of his innings happened when he wasn't actually facing up and you're kind of like like what is this guy's headspace like and then when he faced all these bounces I don't think I've seen him play the short ball better than that yeah also just wearing them as well he yeah. sort of, it felt like he, he took on this whole new idea of I think that what Stoke said afterwards he was asked about Broad and said um you know, I thought that he was probably going to pick a fight with someone, but he actually picked a fight with the entire Australian team and pretty much the whole country as well. I think he's he's obviously got that history. And um, he read that Ollie Robinson stuff about you know he was about Ollie Robinson being the new you know number one villain in Australia, and I, I, he took it right back, didn't he? <laughs> yes, uh, the, uh, the the dialogue, uh, the highlights reel was was pretty good um, watching. Um, the other. The other laws controversy, if we can call it that, um, and uh, it might be another case of moving swiftly on. But there was a there was a vague sense that um, you know on on a deep karmic level, Maria Erasmus was was trying to level things out after um, deciding the night before that Ben Duckett wasn't out because Mitchell Stark had grounded the ball in the process of taking a catch. Again, the laws are fairly clear there, Vish. Yeah, I actually thought that was quite useful because it was a great example of someone who was clearly in control of the ball, but just a bit slack with the rules. Because if he if he if he knew if he knew them as crisply and uh, I suppose as as fully as we assume all cricketers do <laughs> incorrectly, um, then he would have he just wouldn't have turned his palm down, would he? He would have made an effort to, to yeah, just you know, as he was making contact with the ground, make sure that the back of his hand was the thing that was sliding mm. along the ground rather than the ball itself because that helped him control the ball even though he didn't need it I think that's the important thing he didn't need the ground to control the ball but he used it anyway that's certainly my interpretation yeah. of it. and I think because it's so obvious that that you know you could almost you could almost you know knock that up in a DVD people don't watch DVDs anymore <laughs> stick it on Netflix it's like oh here are the rules of cricket but really get into the minutiae of it because I think that's a great example of something that people don't quite understand that is actually very clear when you see it presented mm. like that I mean, I saw a couple of good ways of putting it, but, um, you know, we often see those sort of diving outfield catches where someone does um, catch the ball, both hands or whatever, uh, but in landing, it pops out. And, you know, and that's about being in control of the yeah. ball and your body, you know, until it, until uh, the catch is completed. Um, and also the fact that it was a different example to, say, Stephen Smith off Joe Root when... Uh, that was again quite a, a tight uh, you know, a line call for Erasmus, but he decided that Smith got his fingers under the ball and then held it up by his body. Yes, so it wasn't yeah, a question yeah. of whether the ball was grabbed, or, or rather, it was uh, a question of whether he's in control. But he hadn't grounded the ball as far as Erasmus was concerned, uh, and you know, foreshortening and all that. But you, you couldn't prove it. Whereas Clark Stark clearly did just put the ball on the ground. I thought um, it was, to be honest, I thought it was one of those that probably got heightened because of the time of day it happened just before the end of the session on the fourth day because you can't, I think you kind of forget about that sometimes as a test match you think about the five days play but there is also the overnight element to every test those mm. four nights that you have during the test match week um, and that sort of felt like the thing that stuck in the mind from the mm. end of the fourth day because of the fact that it had happened most recently when I feel like if it had happened um, you know if it had happened in the, the third over of the morning it would have been long forgotten about by then so I think it was one of those that maybe became a, a heightened controversy because of the time of day it happened as much because of the decision because I think you know in the same way that Bairstow's dismissal was was clearly out um, I think that was 
clearly not out by the letter of the law and I don't really think there was any spirit element of it I think Stark actually Stark had a few words with Duckett at one point straight after that and said you know oh, are you just going to stand there when you take a catch and Duckett said well I was walking off mate you know what's it got to do with me um got told to come back so I did which I think is pretty much where where the game is I, I think you know you can take a fielder's word all you want but if the um, if the TV umpire overturns it and says not out you're going to go with that rather than uh your opponent yeah, yeah. Uh, it was Ricky Ponting who always used to like to say we'd take the field to it, uh, wasn't it? But uh, um, we've... They're all liars, aren't they? They're all just liars <laughs> about that kind of stuff. No one knows the rules. <laughs> no one that, walks. That is true. Laws, we, laws. We should, we, we should edit that in laws. And we should leave those laws uh, to the umpires. Um, the other uh, far less savoury aspect uh, of all of the chuntering around laws and spirit and so on was... Um, well, the atmosphere at Lords obviously uh, turned, um, and I think you both kind of uh, commented and wrote about this uh, at the time. But this was a different Lords crowd. Uh, it was the fifth day, um, and and the tickets were a lot cheaper. You know, uh, sold um, when you usually when you know that there's actually going to be a fifth day, um, and. So uh, you had a, a much more lively atmosphere, let's say. Which... Well, I, I mean, as much as anything, you have people actually watching the cricket because so much of the time for the first four days, you have banks of empty what seats. A, because what a of the sacrilegious fact thing to say. People yeah. are sat out the side and they're stood around in the gardens having a glass of champagne or whatever it might be. And not actually very many of them are engaged with the game or they're going for their one token day a year and asking, you know, what happened to that nice nice man with the long hair, Rory Burns and all this sort of thing. And so instead, it's nice to nice to see a crowd who are acti actively engaged um, and actually cared about what was going on, I thought, anyway. And you, you made that point long before the Bairstow run out. You know, it, it was so noticeable. You mm. know, we, we've been commenting in the press box about how the same banks of seats um, empty after lunch. Mm. Um, and it was quite interesting that for the fifth day, that pocket where the Australian fans were on day five was the pocket that was always empty after lunch on days one to four. Um, so evidently there's there must be a control over who gets those tickets because mm. bear in mind that they were, well, they were, so they were 25 quid on, on day five and, and presumably, I'm just guessing here, but they aren't as, they aren't able to be as strict on like, because it's basically the same price. So you can't necessarily do about 50 quid are over here. 75 over here, 125 mm. over here. And I think it's about areas. hospitality bookings as well, right? Right, so, yeah, yeah. Um, so, but yeah, you're 100% right. You know, from the first, I think from the, there were back-to-back -back boundaries that Stokes hit really early in the day. And as soon as those happened, I sort of woke up and thought, this is as loud as I've heard this ground all week. Yeah, yeah. So you were saying is it, it wasn't like the Emirates usually. <laughs> um, um, and yeah, so and you... he's an Arsenal fan yeah. as well. <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> yeah, I can't afford to go anymore. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, but that that kind of then spilled over during the lunch break uh, with um, Australian players being abused essentially by MCC members as they walked through the long room, and obviously this is a, a, a very um, uh, this is a, a distinctive um, part of Lords is that you know the members get to stand right next to the players uh, as they come in and out of the pavilion and you know have a, 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 a nice chat with them or <laughs> exchange a few views about the game. In this case, uh, that's spilled over um, into uh, you know, there was complaint a complaint from Australia. The MCC um, apologised. Uh, I think some three members have had their memberships suspended. I mean, in the week that, that the ICEC report came out and we've been talking about privilege and, and, uh, and uh, the way the game is run and, and uh, the way it looks to outsiders, I mean, just on that level, this was a, 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 an unfortunate time for uh, that sort of behaviour to get beamed around the world, let's say. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought it was a bit off that, um, you know, Sir Andrew Strauss was, um, mentioned about how it was a different Lord's crowd and, you know, mm. he, was, he wasn't, we sh should say, he wasn't the only one who was making that comment and he's right you know it was a very different laws crowd same long room though <laughs> you know pretty much exactly the same people in there for yeah you still have to be a member to go in there yes exactly yeah they, don't, they don't let you in there for your 25 pound no exactly admission. yeah <laughs> um and so like have a have a go if you want that's uh, you know you can express opinion about 
the game you've seen and the fairness of it. That's part of being a fan, you know. That's the that's a binder in it is an entertainment field, and you know, having opinions about it is exactly what certainly us three in this room one, yeah. Um, but there are there are rules when it comes to being in that in that setting, being in that situation. There's a privilege, and I, I mean this. So it was in the in the realest sense for this for this actual situation where players walk through the long room and if you want to be in there, fine, but they'll treat they're treating the whole place respectfully, so at the very least you can as well. I saw a tweet earlier today about I think it was from Barney Roney maybe, about how the idea of um, you know, welcoming in his guests and then just piling into them as they're going back to their change room is is ridiculous really. But you know, they, um, MCC are, are looking into it, and um, I think there's been a lot of here. So, and I thought it'd be interesting to gauge Matt's uh, view on this because you were in the press conference as well. That you know, um, one of the journalists asked what was said to Usman Khawaja to to get that reaction, and um, the Australian media manager shut it down. And I think you know, I'm reflecting that that's a good thing. I think the, because of the ICEC, because of the nature of these kind of situations, and especially when it's someone of colour. Um, there is, you know, well, everyone knows what I'm talking about here. There is uh, people extrapolate and they assume what went on, and we we get further and further from the truth, and we get further and further from a place where people who look like Isman Kawaja are comfortable in those situations. Yeah. Mm. So I thought it was a good idea that they nipped it in the bud because whatever Cummins would have said would have either been construed as definitive proof that something racist was said mm -hmm. or maybe even reflect on the other side of the spectrum, reflected on him as like, oh, he's just trying to cover it up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Kawaja spoke on Channel 9, didn't he? And I don't think made any allegations of mm. that he was targeted for a specific reason. I think from from the footage I've seen, at least it looked like everyone was getting both barrels regardless. Um, and yeah, I, 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 I don't think, just judging from what I've, from the evidence I've seen, that there was anything particularly nefarious about him specifically. I think it was him, him as an Australian cricketer um, as a you know sort of viewed it in the same light as his teammates rather than anything else but um, yeah it will be interesting to see what develops over the next few days because you're sort of hearing various different stories about what happened to who um, three fake names doing yeah. rounds well. <laughs> that's brilliant stuff yeah. Um, but yeah I, th I think I saw one one about um, potentially Smith and Warner having been tripped up the stairs or something yeah. along those lines because <laughs> Cricket Australia originally mentioned physical altercations i think in their statement which cummins then denied but then mm. you know is a trip a physical assault probably not but yeah, um, yeah. again we'll get Cum VAR, we will have to get var yeah as you say if there's contact but i mean the, uh, the whole thing was quite interesting because it felt for that for that period of time that even though they clearly didn't feel as though they'd done anything wrong australia were a bit rattled by the whole thing mm. in terms of and i don't mean that in a sort of you know they they, I don't mean to, to sort of cast judgment on what they did because I don't think they necessarily did anything wrong, but I think just the whole hostility of the atmosphere that emerged, um, you know, a bit like you, you know, a football team going to a European away game or something and being a bit overawed by the ultras, it felt felt mm. a sort of similar vibe to that where you had catches going down and um, it, bowling plans going pretty strange and all this sort of thing. And it did take until the sting had come out of the game a little bit, the afternoon had settled yeah. down for them to come together and sort of reassess their plans because there was a point where England suddenly became, I think, marginal favourites um, at 80-odd to win with four wickets left um, because of the fact that Australia had effectively been bowling at, at, at Stuart Broad and Ben Stokes like they were a partnership between a, yeah. you know, a number six and a number 11 rather than a number six and a number eight. And while Broad's batting has clearly declined, you did. They did still have four wickets to take, um, so you, you did get a slightly strange situation where it felt as though, um, you know, Australia were bowling as though one wicket was all they needed when actually they needed four. As it turned out, obviously the wicket that they did get in Stokes um, meant it was decisive in the end. But it would have been it would have been a really interesting finale to have seen what would have happened if Broad had been the man out at around that time and, and to see how they would have changed things with uh, with a number nine coming in. But yeah, it, it, there was that. It did feed that whole frenzy and fervor and um, the the atmosphere that emerged for those couple of hours, which is pretty extraordinary. And yeah, it took them to to slow it down and I suppose learn learn from the mistakes they made at Leeds four years before um, to finally settle down and win the game. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it all got a bit silly on and off the pitch. Um, it actually seemed like um, Kerry's uh, stumping of 
Bessa was the worst thing they could have done for a while, <laughs> uh, Vish. Uh, <laughs> as kind of, well, your piece invoked kind of Old Testament um, retribution, I think, um, after the match. I, I was thinking of Jules Winfield and Ezekiel 25-17, and I will strike down upon thee with great vengeance and furious anger those who attempt to poison and destroy my brothers. And obviously you can do the Samuel L. Jackson voice in your head. But, uh, <laughs> the, I mean, Stokes uh, did threaten to tear everything up on a level that was beyond Headingley 2019. Uh, I think there were 178 needed um, when Bairstow was dismissed. And obviously England weren't going to win from there. But as Matt says, they they got to a point where they were marginally favourites. Yeah, well, they... I mean, weren't they going to win? I don't know. I thought... I mean, I agree with you. Yeah, they, they weren't going to win. And, and, and then they were winning. Like... <laughs> As ridiculous as it sounds, England, there was a point in that game, for the first time maybe in that game, England were winning. And <laughs> were, had Australia not, you know, in, in Matt's piece, Matt goes into the, all the detail of it, but had they not rallied, you know, after Stark gets pumped for those two sixes when he comes back, um, we'd, be, we'd be having a different conversation now. And I don't think anyone would be talking about the Bears, I think, beyond the fact that it fueled Ben Stokes. But... It was honestly astonishing there. I think we did polite inquiries where we talked about it was so happy to be here, but it was. It, I don't think we went into any real detail because we were still a bit shell-shocked by it, even though it didn't have a bearing on the result. Um, it was astonishing how much clarity he had. He was hitting towards the mountain in Tavistan because the wind was going that way, and it's an easier hit when you're downhill, which you will know if you're a golfer, <laughs> of which he and the rest of them are, yeah? Luckily, they've got yeah. a little bit of uh, form in that, that regard. And... And then even when you look at the, you think of earlier in the day, I thought Ben Duckett played brilliantly. Mm. And considering he started his innings getting dropped by Cameron Green, he finished it getting caught slash dropped by Mitchell Stark on day four. And then he goes out there and plays like such a mature innings. And and he is a mature player. I think it's easy because of, you know, what he was like when he was younger and younger in his general impishness to paint him as this, um, you know, I suppose immature cricketer. But he's not. He's an exceptional outfielder as well. And he's someone who's really surprised me in the way that, you know, I, I, I knew he's a good player. That's that's nothing that surprises me. I'm just really su- impressed about the way he's taken to, to, you know, just how he carries himself generally. Like, he's currently facing one of the best attacks he's, he's ever faced in his career. And he's done so without really taking a backward step. And despite the fact that he had his issues outside of Stump, he seems to have completely turned that around in such a short window for, for I suppose, like ironing out those technical kinks. But he, um, you know, he also he fed into the idea that like actually Stokes is trying to take this team, having taken it this far, is trying to take it in a slightly different direction to cope with the fact that they are, you know, now two 0 down in an Ashes one 0 at the time, um, and it feels like I, I don't know if this net, the fact that there's a three day gap between now and Henley is a good thing or a bad thing, and I suppose we'll find out. But maybe just keeping up that intensity and almost keeping up that noise and that kind of ridiculous. Look, we can we can do anything if we we really want to. Period. That Stokes was able to concoct in those twenty one overs. Then oh, I don't know. Like, who knows? It might be three two, and I feel like an idiot for saying that. <laughs> well, that is, uh, we've said earlier in the series, really, that that um, all bets are off with Basball and and uh, Don Bradman nineteen thirty six thirty seven Ashes. It has been done before. Um, it clearly going to be something special if England do manage to do that from here. And uh, I mean, we've talked a lot about the differences between the sides. England kind of uh, bringing the funk, and Australia just uh, just playing Test cricket, you know, <laughs> and winning at it. Um, I mean, Matt, this the run chase. England kind of uh, had the better of the game. Uh, in, they won the toss. They inserted Australia in the best bowling conditions. When they batted, it was uh, it was pretty benign. Um, Nathan Lyon was invalided out after bowling sort of thirteen overs or something in the first innings. Um, but yet, you know, they were still always behind until well, yeah, until they were six down and, and Stokes was on a mad one. But it, the, the chase as, uh, last summer was what really focused them. Uh, they they chased. Almost as many a sort of ballpark figure uh, against India at Edgbaston, um, against a very good India attack. 
But Australia did seem to have just uh, that extra cutting edge here, uh, which meant that England were, were 45 for four on that fourth evening. And, and albeit that they did get a lot closer than perhaps you, you would have thought from that position um, to, to, to have had to have lost those key wickets, to have lost, you know, Joe Root to that Pat Cummins ball. And, and then in the same over, he produced an even better delivery to get rid of Harry Brook. Mm. I mean, that is the, the level that England are going to have to match if they are going to come back and beat Australia over the next three tests. Yeah, I suppose that there were periods in both innings with the ball where it felt like nothing was happening for Australia. And in every case, they managed to find a little period where things suddenly turned back their way. So in the first innings, obviously, at 188 for one, they went short and that, that paid off for them. And then particularly the morning after... The third morning, I thought, was the really, you know, that I think England will probably, and Australia will reflect on that as one of the decisive passages of play in the game, where not only did they take those six wickets in 90 minutes on the on the third morning, they also did it while restricting England's scoring. I think they only scored 47, which, you know, given the, uh, sort of, um, given England's general predilection to attack and score quickly, they did a pretty good job of, of squeezing them. Um, and then also, yeah, in the second innings, they had that, that you know, realistically, that was probably a decisive period. It, even even in innings like that from Stokely Pope and Cummins came up with the over that he did to, to Root and Brook. So it kind of felt like even though um, they were without one of the world's best spinners in Nathan Lyon, Australia just had enough quality at, at all times. They had enough variety within the attack. Um, to be able to go short, I, I think you, it, it's easy to sort of because of the fact we've watched them for so long. It's easy to sort of underestimate just how good Cummins, Hazelwood, and Stark are as a trio, and sort of how they all offer slightly different things. The, the sort of sheer size and athleticism of these guys as well. I mean, they're they're all incredibly tall. They all Big regularly units. they all regularly hit high eighties, sort of low one forties kilometers an hour. Um, they all keep running in. They, you know, see movement, swing. There's a bit of everything, left arm angle. And as a trio, they're just unbelievably good. And they've served Australian cricket for a long time to the extent that we kind of occasionally forget just how good they are. Um, and yeah, I mean, they were phenomenal at particular stages of that game, even though they obviously had to keep coming back and keep doing the legwork. Um, and yeah, I thought they were probably the difference in the end. Could I ask you, Matt, because this is very much we're leaning into your wheelhouse here, but there was a lot of talk coming into the series about Mitchell Stark, not least the fact that, you know, he's hasn't played IPL in X many years and that he's, t he's taking tests seriously. Josh Hagerwood has played, basically played instead of him in, in some ways in terms yeah. of like fulfilling, you know, filling that gap of one Australian bowler down in, in that competition, has played a lot more T20 cricket. I feel like that played a part in how they turned things around yesterday. Yeah, quite possibly. I think, well, and as well, you know, Cummins obviously has been to the IPL and has experience there and, and ditto green this year for the first time. And much as I, you know, much as I'm slightly loath to say that was the main, the main reason that Australia turned it around. They I did suppose also, I mean T T20 bowling. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, yeah it, they did, they did go to T20 plans a lot of the time. I think particularly the ball that really sort of stuck in my head was just after they'd, had that committee meeting where they turned things around. Cummins brought himself on for the over after drinks and he started by hanging one, you know, Stokes was facing and had the mound and tavern stands, leg side, ready to go. And Cummins, you know, we've talked a lot about first balls setting the tone and sometimes it does happen and sometimes it doesn't. But he, for me, set the tone for how they were, how they'd adapted by bowling a wide slower ball at about 75 miles an hour, hidden miles outside off stump to Stokes with boundary riders on both sides of the ground and say go on then you know hit this if you can and that that felt straight like a, a, a t20 plan and um yeah I, you know i'm sure it kind of hurt the fact that they're the fact that they're three format bowlers as much as anything um it, which i suppose england didn't really have in that test um obviously they adapted to going short pretty well but hey, how many slower balls did we see from england's bowlers across the course of those five days very few i think um, and it does does feel like a sort of an added point, you know, just to further what I was saying there about the quicks. Not only have they managed to do it in this format, they've also already previously won an ODI and a T20 World Cup with the same trio. So they're pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, and we've talked a lot about uh, England's uh, attack over. On the pod, and uh, you know, they've got some pretty decent bowlers in there as well. A couple of them with uh, you know, getting on for 
600 or 700 um, test wickets between them, uh, or individually even. You'd have expected, perhaps, Vish, uh, for England to have made better use of that first toss, uh, sorry, winning the toss and bowling first on the morning uh, on sort of a Lord's made-to-order bowling day, you know, overcast, bit of drizzle yeah. around, all that sort of thing. Um, James Anderson and Stuart Broad are the two bowlers in the world with the most test wickets at Lord's. They weren't helped by a couple of drops, but you could make the argument that that's where the game got away from them uh, and they never caught it back up. You know, they keep, they kept saying they were unlucky during that first morning and, and actually I'm, I'm inclined to agree. Like The ball was moving a lot cutting through both left-handed openers, passing the outside edge. I, I think they were genuinely unlucky and it was only, you know, Josh Tong coming in and just bowling maybe that a little bit fuller or, and also just having that extra pace that um, we started to, well, England started to make some inroads and we started to see, I suppose, a bit more cutting edge from England. Um, but I suppose we got to, you know, you get to the end of the game and you look at it on paper, Australia had the worst of conditions um, on a number of fronts. England had the best of conditions, particularly with the the better batting conditions as well, which which does make a huge difference to Lords, as you say, especially on that pitch. And now it feels like, you know, you, you kind of hope that Lords isn't the way things are going to pan out. And, and your, Lords has always been quite unique in, in, I suppose, how much you can do with the decks there. You know, we saw in the 2019 World Cup final. I think that's a good indication of the fact that, I know it wasn't quite the 400 printing scorecards for 500 that everyone talked about before that competition, but certainly the the pitch for the final was was not up to the maybe not up to the standard expected for the, for the batters I suppose if we talk specifically about that um but what we have found is this is what you know judging by Edgerton as well and presumably Headingley so far along that they won't be able to change that so that'll be in line with what Stokes requested which was fast flat pitches and we're seeing now that this is the English version of Flat or fast, yeah. <laughs> I.e. not fast. <laughs> yeah, and, and the person... As I think Mitchell Stark said during the, yeah, during yeah. the test. Well, exactly, yeah. He said, you know, this is probably what they, what they, what they mean over here when they, when they say fast and flat. It's a very different definition that we have over there um, back home. But the person it's affected most is seemingly James Anderson. And I think not only has it affected him in terms of the fact that there's not as much movement off the surface and the fact that he's not... You know, getting him to bowl bounces is is stupid. It, it always has been stupid, even now when it's the the plan. But he's always been willing to do it, and he did it in Pakistan very well. And he's actually a very good short ball bowler. But this is the guy who England have he's been the jewel in England's crown for for so long, and it feels kind of productive. Jimmy Clouderson. Yeah, well, <laughs> there's also you know something to say about the, this Duke's ball, and it kind of makes me wonder how bad the Duke's ball was last year because <laughs> they're not quite complaining about it, but they're saying that you know this ball goes softer after 34 overs. And from memory, I think the last one was 20, wasn't it? And, you know, when I spoke to Stuart Broad at Laws after a county championship game, I asked him about the ball and he was like, well, I was like, is this a lot better? And he, he didn't necessarily give it a glowing view. He just basically said, well, it couldn't have been worse. Mm. So evidently that, you know, that probably plays a part in it as well, which puts the onus more on pace. And then it's quite damning, isn't it? Because you see the way, Australia, you know, Matt mentioned it earlier, but... The wickets that Australia took on on day the evening of day four, yeah. like absurd, like genuine pearlers. You could rewatch all of them if you weren't busy watching a montage of Stuart Broad just, you know, <laughs> hamming up being in his crease. But that that was always going to be the difference. That was always going to be the problem with the surfaces that made to order. And I suppose maybe we're a bit surprised that the golf. Certainly, I am a bit surprised at the golf between the two attacks given that the English one is in home conditions mm. and has had cloud cover for most of the time it's bowled in the, they've bowled in this series. I'm just surprised that the gap is so vast. They, on Anderson, there have been a couple of moments in this series which have suddenly, I feel, woken everyone up a little bit around Anderson. I think particularly the, the final day at Edgebaston, him not being involved for the final 30-odd overs mm. of that game. Um, you know, Stokes effectively saying that he backed Joe Root more than Anderson to, to have a part in, to have a say on that final day in the outcome of that match, plus Mo and Ali with sort of half a finger. Um, then not taking the new ball um, on the first evening of the Edgebaston test. And also in the in the field in Australia's second innings. I mean, he, he 
dropped two catches, which it, it felt like he sort of both took him by complete surprise, even though they were more or less straight at him. So, um, and that's even before we talk about the fact, you know, his batting's never been his strongest suit, but getting sconed in the grill on the final day suddenly again was another wake-up call where you just thought this this isn't quite what we're used to with Anderson. And I, I feel like, you know, we're at a point now with Anderson where... Um, it feels pretty foolish to question exactly when he's going to finish because he is seemingly ageless and endless and will always carry on. And I think I think he even said in a uh, in a sort of newspaper magazine supplement interview before this um, before this series, you know, why couldn't I go on until the twenty five, twenty six Ashes? But mm. this does kind of feel like we're heading towards end days. Um, I'm loath to write him off because if he plays it heading me, he's every chance he'll take five for split in the first innings. But um, it, I mean, the signs haven't been great. And as Vish pointed out to me at Edgebaston, he's, he's not won an Ashes test since 2015. And I don't know, I feel like he's the obvious man to drop out if England choose to rotate in Leeds. And, you know, that that, that could be it. You've said it. You've said it now, Matt. Um <laughs> It's fair to say he has got three wickets at 75 in the series so far and didn't look very happy um, through much of this test. Well, um, even the one he got when Marla slapped a backward point, oof. he didn't look very happy with that, did he? He yeah. was almost embarrassed that that would be replayed as yeah. you know, maybe his last wicket in Ashes. Um, and we, um, we've touched on the, um, the way England had to... Uh, find a way to get wickets um, and, you know, long hops to Manus, I don't think was uh, a plan that the group had come up with. But, um, I mean, the bouncer wars, uh, it sounds like a Channel 5 reality series, but... Uh, Jonathan Pierce's commentator. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the game went down a pretty weird rabbit hole, uh, uh, Vish, on that, um, I think it was the fourth... Uh, yes, yes, yeah. uh, afternoon session when, I mean, England sort of basballed it as they do and, and something like 98% of the deliveries they bowled were, were short. And I don't think Anson bowled at all in that session. I think he bowled a couple of overs of bounces before lunch. But, I mean, that's not really his wheelhouse. Um, is it even really what anyone who was at Lords wants to see again uh, I mean, it did work as a tactic. And I think there is something to be said about the, the sort of theatre of batters of, of trying to avoid playing. And generally speaking, avoiding short balls, how to play short balls. You know, uh, there was a good picture of Travis Head doing the old sort of spitting cobra, uh, leaping midair to get his head out of the way. Um, and, and England took eight Australian wickets that way. Yeah. Um, Marcus Truscothic, I think, was almost on a sort of philosophical treatise uh, mood afterwards where he discussed whether it was going to change the game for good, bad or, or otherwise. But um... he, was, he was asked if it was good and he said, I don't know. And I, I really rated that because, yeah, I feel like none of us do. And it might even just be what we mentioned earlier, like just needs must when the pitches are mm. doing much and the, the ball isn't doing much, then... And that's, that's that the only thing you have to do. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, the, the, Neil the Wagner approach. made a career out of it. Yeah, <laughs> um, and I suppose you know we'll we'll find out if if the pitches are like this going forward. Then that's something they have to do. Like, like that's that's just the way it is. I I think in in or the like moment. A spinner or something. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but in the moment, like you know, watching it, I was like, this is a bit rubbish. I'm quite bored. Um, and then you enter into these. The worst time, the the worst thing that could happen to a cricket press box is be given time to think. And so we were all co- conversing about the fact that, like, God, is this the future of Test cricket? Is this what it's always, always going to be like? Is this how the rest of the series is going to play out? Now, you know, a bit removed from it, I feel a bit like, you know, if the pitches are going to be like that, if the match situation is going to take that, then why wouldn't England do that? Because. As you said, it worked. You know, they they were able to get a choice of when they batted, which when day four started, you were in Australia had a lead of what two twenty one, I think. You were a mm-hmm. bit like, right, this could get really bad, and they managed to do two things that you you couldn't really do on that pitch in terms of control the scoring and also take wickets. So, yeah, like hopefully we don't see it like that again. But I think 
you know, it, it would be stupid of them not to employ that just because we're bored. I thought it was a response to a very specific set of circumstances, which were a softball, uh, a two-paced pitch, and the fact that England didn't pick a spinner, basically. It, yeah. was, it was my read on it. I think they felt rightly that they could control the scoring and create some chances that way. The ball was doing nothing in the air or off the seam and their best slow bowling option was Joe Root, who, while he's a much improved bowler, is a, a part-timer and a you know primarily a number four batter. So, um, I and felt... also they picked, they picked it off quicks for it, didn't they? Well, exactly. That's yeah. the other thing. Mm. You know, and Stokes bowled 12 overs on the reel at one point, basically doing that um, towards the end of the inning. So, it, you know, when you have... Um, I wouldn't say it was necessarily a luxury because of the fact that none of them were, well, with possible exception of Josh Tung, none of them would be England's ideal candidates for that ploy. Um, they did have five quicks that could potentially just keep running in, and um, so they did. Um, Josh Tung is a, a selection that's worked out quite well, Vish. Uh, yeah, massively so, yeah. Um, so I suppose, we do we need to go all the way back? Because he did... You know, he did play against Ireland, so we've had this conversation. But, um, you know, he obviously impressed on the Lions. And I think he's surprised a lot of people, actually. Because he... Well, obviously, you know, because of injury, he hasn't played in a while. But Daryl Mitchell, who's now at the PCA, who used to be Worcestershire captain, was in the Lord's Press Box. And I was talking to him at the back. And I was like, you know, did you... Does it feel strange seeing Josh out there? And he was like, yes and no. Like, yes, because... Sorry, no, no, because... When he joined, we were like, okay, this kid's got something about him, a bit of extra pace, um, good action, repeatable action, and impress some England scouts early. And, you know, what? once, you're, once you've caught the eye, you don't ever lose it, really. You know, they're always keeping tabs on you. Um, and he said, yes, it's a surprise because he just wasn't really sure, like, how it would progress because that excitement rarely comes to fruition. And for someone who's gone through that injury, that's generally the dropping-off point. That's when they... You know, they. How how do you come back from from those sorts of situations? You know, we've seen so many bowlers that burst onto the scene who you're like, wow, this this kid's got something about him. I, I think immediately to someone that I watched in Stuart Meeker, and I thought, wow, this guy's crazy fast. And then, you know, gets one England cap and in an ODI, and that oh sorry, plays an ODI series, and and that's it. But I suppose with Tongue to have come in for Test cricket is probably a credit to how they're picking teams and how they're identifying talent they've gone back to the Duncan Fletcher thing of you know the, the numbers mean a certain thing but how do they look how do they specifically for a fastballer how do they make batters look and as we saw you know during this test tongue makes him uncomfortable and he's whether he's pitching it full or whether he's banging it in short and a fair play handy dismissals of David Warner yeah exactly but and also you know what I know it was for nothing and it, it didn't look particularly pretty, but His I, was re- I was really impressed with that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, it would be so easy to just, like, Jimmy's over there getting peppered. Just uh, did not yeah. one away. He's, he's done it, he's done it before. He's done it before. Yeah, I mean, like, I just, he was clubbing down the ground and, you know. Clap another 50 down the ground. And, but but there's, a lot yeah. to be sa- there's a lot to be said for being in that situation and not being afraid to show your limitations and not being scared of embarrassing yourself. Mm. And he wasn't. And I think they probably learned a lot more from that innings, probably stuff that they won't repeat publicly, but they probably saw a lot more of his character from that innings than they would have done in, you know, two week, a month of conversation. Just just on the numbers thing and sort of not caring about county championship averages or whatever, I completely agree with that. I think they are looking at numbers, but very different numbers just because of the fact that there's so much more data now available to England scouts and England selectors. Um, so the stuff that, that they've trialled a lot this year, they have these eye-hawk cameras that umpires are wearing, which yeah. give them access to... Um, much more speed data than they've ever had in county cricket and pretty uniform coverage as well, rather than having a couple of cameras at a couple of grounds on a sort of rotating basis, which they've had previously. Um, and I think one of the things I've heard mentioned in relation to tongue was was stuff about speeds dropping off in spells. Um, so while it might, you know, while he'd taken however many wickets at 40 odd in the championship this year. Yeah, 11 think, at 41.45. There you go. I think they, they probably cared significantly more about the fact that he was still regularly hitting mid 80s um, in his third spell of a day rather than the fact that he was creating however many chances against Derbyshire and um, you know whoever else Um, so yeah I think they I I agree that they're not looking at he's got the most wickets let's get him in Um, I think they are looking at numbers just different ones and slightly more um, 
slightly more relevant ones necessarily than just outcomes at a lower level. Yeah, it's it's information rather than numbers, yeah, I suppose. Yeah. That would be the way to put it, yeah. Yeah, nice. Well, he certainly seems to have uh, sort of shot up uh, the queue. Um, Matt Potts was an impressive selection last summer, but and now it's um, now it's dropped. Yeah, yeah, and essentially he's been dropped. Yeah, he paid the price. It was you know <laughs> those isotonic drinks were all that all that. Anything a catch as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, all that time on as a sub at Lords. Um, on to Headingley then, um, and the start of the greatest comeback. Um, <laughs> I mean, there's a clearly a big question for Australia is uh, is Nathan Lyon's absence, Matt. He's out the series effectively. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, and um, Todd Murphy is the uh, the next man in line. Pat Cummins sort of mentioned his name at uh, the post match last night. Um, he's highly rated, but uh, he's a pretty inexperienced um, cricketer. I mean, he's had a, maybe a seasonal. Uh, and a half in Australian domestic cricket. He's had four test caps. Um, it's quite a big, well, they're big shoes to fill. Nathan Lyon was about to, or is closing in uh, on 500 test wickets. Uh, had just played his 100th consecutive test. Um, so uh, good luck, Toddy Murphy. Yeah, basically, I think they're going to throw him in there as a lifer-like and, and hope he thrives. I mean, he obviously had a very good tour of India. Um, it just just gone. Um, and has clearly impressed people. He's obviously overtaken, for example, Mitchell Swepson in the queue for Australia spinners. Um, and, and I suppose in terms of a like-for-like, like, he does exactly the same thing that Lyon does in terms of bowling um, with a bit of drift and decent decent revs on his off-break. So I, I think the, the hope from Australia's point of view will be that they can throw him in and England will probably keep taking him on. I'm sure they, In fact, I'm sure England will, will take Murphy on and look to put him under pressure, especially early on. Um, but I suppose the, the the test will be whether he can um, bowl as many wicket-taking balls as Lyon managed to, or whether he, he just gets whacked, because Lyon's economy rate for the series, I don't have to hand, but I'm sure it's over four. But the key thing has been the fact that he's constantly bowling, attacking balls that are, are creating chances. The question is whether Murphy, when he's under that pressure, can keep trusting his, his stock ball, whether he can keep getting enough purchase on it um, to actually take wickets. And I think um, the, the sort of the, the general lack of success that spinners have had against England in this era suggests that I think they'll, they'll be going into looking to take him down. I'm, I'm thinking back to the Leeds test last year where Michael Bracewell played for New Zealand and maybe he's slightly less frontline spinner than Todd Murphy is, but he got absolutely hammered around the place by Besto in particular, I suppose. Um, and I think England will be looking to take him down. And obviously, um, Cummins sort of hinted last night that, that Boland, as the fresh member of the main four seamers, will probably come in. I would guess that Hazelwood, who looked a little bit weary and uh, hasn't played back-to-back tests very often at all in the last three years, might be the guy to make way. And I think England will be looking at a, 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 an attack of, potentially an attack of slightly weary and leggy Cummins and Stark after big workloads at Lords, Cummins in particular, bowled 25 overs in the second innings. And be looking at those two plus Boland and Murphy and thinking, actually, you know what? This is an opportunity here. And it, obviously, they, they can't really say anything else other than we've got a great opportunity to win 3-2. But I, I do feel as though England will go in genuinely believing that it's a slightly weakened Australia attack and it is quite a good opportunity to, to get a, a win and get back in the series because at 2-1 heading into those final two tests I think you know all bets are off it's a dangerous lead 2-0 exactly um, we, we said that pretty much from the start of the test I think yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, Vish there, there has been some talk about kind of um, the fact England uh, bats so quickly gives their bowlers less time to rest and uh, they have played um, the same three seamers in, in um, the first two tests. Obviously, then Tung came in for Moeen Ali. Uh, perhaps where they do have a, a, a slight edge is on, on sort of bench strength and, and the squad they can pick from. They probably will bring in Mark Wood and possibly Moeen Ali Um I mean, do you see that as strengthening their chances um, of of getting that win that keeps the series alive? I do because you know the bowlers they'd be replacing haven't really impacted the series uh, in that. Who are they replacing? <laughs> well, this well, see, yeah. So that's a good question. Yeah. So I suppose you know Jimmy won't play as Matt said earlier. 
I suppose the difficult one is broad. Um, I don't think it would be... The, the thing about dropping Robinson, or rather resting Robinson for this test, will be the fact that actually he was very impressive during the bumper spell. And I think given how he is when the ball is nipping around and I think having a bit of a warrior, somebody wants the heat, that appeals a lot to Stokes. But you think Wood comes in, you think Mo comes in. I suppose Josh Tongue has made that a bit awkward now in terms of do we go Broad and Tongue or do we go Robinson and Tongue? Because I don't think Robinson and Broad should play together necessarily at Headingley. I think they might just in terms of how Stokes spoke about Tongue very much seeing him as a like-for-like replacement for Wood heading into right, the Laws yeah, test. So yeah. I think there's an outside chance. Well, I don't know. It might actually be a decent chance that it could be Robertson Broad, Wood, and then potentially Moeen or... Pot- I think Maybe I think time, one yeah. thing I think one thing that I did think during this test was that England do need to start picking a number eight who can bat because much as Stuart Broad did pretty valiantly in the second innings, he made, what, 11 or something like that. Um, and off 36, one of the great yeah, 11s. It was a great 11, but um, <laughs> even still, I, I do think that feels like, especially with the contrast, you know, much as there's been chat about Australia's tail, when you saw Stark and Cummins walking out at eight and nine, that's very different to Broad and Robinson um, in terms of batting ability. So I do think England should start factoring, a, and much as they, they've sort of made a point of not thinking about um, having a long tail very much over the past however long, I do think they need to start picking a number eight who is at least a number nine rather than a number 10, if that makes sense. Chris Wokes, anyone? Well, it, it Wokes, it's a, it, it's a bizarre situation, isn't it? He's, he's slipped miles down the <laughs> He was the put up for, uh, for media uh, ahead of the Lord, uh, the Ireland, Ireland test. test yeah. yeah. And... Uh, Hasn't been seen since. Yeah, I I've, I sort of get it because he's obviously not played a huge amount of Red Bull cricket in the last 12 months. And, you know, I think he's maybe been a little bit down on pace when he's when he's played one-day cricket for England or T20 cricket, more to the point, in, in the World Cup in Australia and maybe wasn't quite as effective then as we'd seen before. And obviously, despite the fact that he's, a, you know, for a long time been a, a long-term success as a broad and Anderson, he himself is, I think, 33 or 34 now. Um, but still, it, it does seem strange that he's got to a point where having been a bit of a banker for England at home, he's now a reasonable way down the pecking order. Although he, the fact he's been retained ahead of Matthew Potts suggests that they are at least considering him. Well, we will wait and see. There's a short turnaround uh, before the third test. Um, a quick word on on the, the women's Ashes being... Um, Close to concluding as well, uh, Vish, with Australia 6-0 up after um, winning the test in the first T20. If they get to, uh, uh, if they win another game, that's it, because England uh, cannot then get ahead of them on the point system. Um, if the men were to go to lose the Ashes this week, I mean, it could both sets of Ashes could be lost this week. I mean, we could be 3-0 down in the men's tests and 8-0 uh, or... Or eight two or whatever in in the in the women's ashes, um, the whole ECB's uh, marketing plan of you can't get anything better. What's better than one ashes series, two ashes series, ashes, ashes I mean, two ashes, yeah. <laughs> it's, dust to dust. Yeah, it, it, it's it's not looking so sharp on that front. No, no, <laughs> it's not at all. But uh, you know, to take a step back, we, obviously, to, then everyone has to lose their jobs, and you know, we. Start oh yeah, again. we're having a rev- <laughs> we'll have a review. Yeah. Yeah. Get Strauss yeah. back. <laughs> um, I think you know to take a step back, and, and like the ICEC is quite an important part of this. You know, look, looking at how it was going into this summer, probably the first time in a while I've seen like genuine alignment between the men and women's teams. Um, that they actually care about it and that there was a bit more back and forth and I, and I know that's aside from the hundred of course which is yeah yeah know. that yeah um <laughs> and i appreciate that that's quite front facing but i think you know lo- loads of different things about like you know and i suppose there's a reason we hear these stories if we're not going to get too cynical about pr but you know heather and i are talking to Stuart abroad about um what trent bridge Bowling is like bridge, uh yeah. lauren filer having someone like jack brooks to lean upon as you know, a, a current playing mentor, as it were. I don't think we've seen that kind of, I suppose, cross-code conversation or certainly that mentorship quite so often. I mean, it, do, it does happen, but I think that was the first time that, um, you know, without wishing to be be that person who's like giving credit for what a woman does to a man, I think the, I think that that actual, that synergy is really important because it hasn't been there. And, and, and actually, if you, when you speak to people, 
off the record, there does feel a bit more friction there than is openly apparent. So maybe it'll be a good thing that they lose the ashes together and they can both, both humans can, you know, get on the sauce together. But <laughs> yeah, it, it'd be pretty damning because, you know, just like the, just like the men, the, you know, the England women have, have lost like two close games, really. Um, and that's probably the, the sad thing about it because it's, you know, we're only going to remember the scoreline at the end of this, not really the fact that this was We're not, we're not about results, Fish. Yeah, but they are, aren't they? <laughs> so, yeah, it's. A, I, I suppose it's also notable that the test is the first game of this series, mm. which meant, especially with a five-day test, the result is going is obviously going to be a huge part of it. And I, I actually, I wonder whether what England would would see as a as a win from this point, because obviously it feels like the series is probably gone. I think a drawn a drawn series in terms of points would be a, a huge sort of moral victory almost mm. but I wonder if that they would think, mean winning four of the remaining five yeah I, I wonder if they're almost thinking in isolation if they could win either of the T20 series or the ODI series maybe that would be in, in some sense it would be a better result than um, you know just getting hammered all the time I mean obviously it would that's a pretty pretty <laughs> obvious thing to say but I feel as though it almost given the fact they'd lost the test in the first instance it almost felt like that was probably the decisive moment in the multi-format series and that the rest of it needs to be isolated but yeah it does feel harsh that we're in this position already having you know England having probably run Australia a lot closer than they have in in most recent Ashes series um to then be you know staring down the barrel of the series slipping away at the Oval on on Wednesday night um feels quite sudden but um yeah I suppose Australia as we've said with the men are pretty good well at the time of recording both series are still alive (laughs) and uh, we'll leave it there I think that is enough Ashes aggro for one week. England go to Headingley looking for some magic to keep the series alive. Never mind saving Test cricket, they need to start saving themselves. We'll be back for more next week, as will the ladies who switch. For now, my thanks to Vish and Matt. Please feel free to rate us on your preferred pod platform and keep up with all the latest news on ESPNCrickInfo.com. Listener.